This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield. Everywhere we turn, a startling new device promises to transfigure our lives. But at what cost? In this urgent and revelatory excavation of our information age, leading technology thinker Adam Greenfield forces us to reconsider our relationship with the networked objects, services, and spaces that define us. It is time to reevaluate the Silicon Valley consensus determining the future. We already depend on the smartphone to navigate every aspect of our existence. We're told that innovations, from augmented reality interfaces and virtual assistants to autonomous delivery drones and self-driving cars, will make life easier, more convenient, and more productive. 3D printing promises unprecedented control over the form and distribution of matter, while the blockchain stands to revolutionize everything from the recording and exchange of value to the way we organize the mundane realities of the day-to-day. And all the while, fiendishly complex algorithms are operating quietly in the background, reshaping the economy, transforming the fundamental terms of our politics, and even redefining what it means to be human. Having successfully colonized everyday life, these radical technologies are now conditioning the choices available to us in the years to come. How do they work? What challenges do they present to us as individuals and societies? Who benefits from their adoption? In answering these questions, Greenfield's timely guide clarifies the scale and nature of the crisis we now confront and offers ways to reclaim our stake in the future. Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took out a member of the Democratic House leadership. If Carrie Evelyn Harris wins in Delaware, she will have knocked out an incumbent U.S. senator. And that would be a really big deal. Harris, a left candidate backed by Justice Democrats, is my guest today. She is the latest candidate putting forward the bold proposition that in a democracy, ordinary people should represent themselves, particularly since well-credentialed incumbents like her opponent, Senator Tom Carper, so often do the bidding of corporate interests. Before we get rolling, this podcast runs on listener contributions made at patreon.com slash the dig. If you've been putting off making a contribution because you've never used the Patreon website before, have no fear. It's pretty easy. Plus, $5 a month gets you access to our weekly newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either the ABCs of Socialism or Assad Haters' Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and you get a bunch of great lefty books. Also, I wanted to remind you that we have a live dig coming up in Brooklyn on August 17th called Blockadia and Beyond left climate politics for the 21st century. I've included details in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Okay, 
Here's Carrie Evelyn Harris, who is running against U.S. Senator Tom Carper in Delaware's Democratic primary. Carrie Evelyn Harris, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. You were in the the Air Force. After that, you worked a ton of jobs to make ends meet. You have done activism and organizing work. You're currently completing your BA, and you're running for the U.S. Senate. Many members of Congress are millionaires with law degrees. How are ordinary people in Delaware responding to the rare sight of an ordinary person running to represent them in Washington? Actually, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, You know, at first people were a little hesitant just because we're not used to seeing ourselves in in positions of power, right? Um, And so one of the benefits of being an organizer is I have the great privilege of showing people that they have power. And that's just an extension that we see here in the campaign. And so, um, no, I'm not the... uh, the average profile of somebody in Congress. However, I am the average profile of the people of the United States uh, and most certainly people in Delaware. And for once, people say, you know what, we don't have to cower in the corner and wait for somebody else to fix things. We have the answers and let's push forward. And they see that in me and they they know that I am somebody that will work hard um, and never give up and make sure we get to the end together. And so, uh, None of those things scare people away. It actually excites them, and they see themselves in me and know I see them in um, see myself in them. You co-founded the Delaware Civil Rights Coalition just before Trump was inaugurated. Tell me about the organizing work you do and how you first got into activism on the left. I first got into activism. It wasn't considered on the left uh, at all. It was just what it was mandated, and it it happened with my parents. Uh, Both of my parents were active during the civil rights movement um, in different perspectives, right? My mother is white, and she registered black sharecroppers in the Deep South, um, rode on Freedom Rides. She would one time told me, you know, I knew Julian Bond when he was just a handsome man on on a bus. He wasn't Julian Bond yet, right? So, um, and my dad, he had a different upbringing. He's black, uh, was raised part of his life in Virginia. Then his parents moved up to New York with the Great Migration. Eventually, they called down for him. He went back up to New York. Um, My grandfather on my dad's side was an illiterate potato farmer, but he knew that he could advance and made sure his only son made it through college. Um, But my dad said he would never be forced to uh, work on a farm. And so not only did he go to college, but he made sure that he went and taught migrant workers their rights and made sure that they weren't taken advantage of because he saw it one too many times with his father. Um, and then going forward, they were school teachers. And when they weren't teaching, they were making sure that we were participating in our communities. Uh, we were never wealthy, but somehow my parents always found ways to help out people within the community. And they put that inside my uh, siblings and I. I'm the youngest of six. And you will notice all of us are very active in our community. Um, and some in larger ways than others, but regardless, we know that community is what matters. And so <clears throat> my activism was bred into me, so to speak. And even now, um, when I was in the military, I volunteered with the Red Cross and Habitat for Humanity, constantly was working within my community uh, with 
you know, youth drug program preventions. And, um, and now I get the distinct opportunity to work full-time as an organizer up and down the state of Delaware and nationally on issues like healthcare reform, education reform, criminal justice reform, tax reform that actually works for the middle class, you name it, I've worked on it. Um, and so, you know, and I work for a number, work with or for a number of organizations. It depends on the organization um, within the state and nationally to make sure that we push these issues that are pe- about making people's lives better. Your opponent, Senator Tom Carper, has been pretty friendly to big business and to banks. He voted to weaken Dodd Frank and voted against a bill that would allow for the import of prescription drugs from Canada. He has also received a ton of money from pharma and finance. It seems like quite a coincidence. Yes. um, And those are my major issues, right? Uh, There are areas where he votes along democratic lines about 80 to 85 percent of the time. But when it comes time to standing up for the people and having the hard votes, uh, he, he wavers to the corporate world and to big pharma, just like you said. And that's something we can't accept. Uh, We need leaders who stand up when the people are affected. And even before it becomes the uh, new sexy thing to do, right? They have to notice that this is what has to happen. I noticed that if on the horizon, if we continue to not make sure that healthcare is not just accessible, but is free to everyone in the United States, then we're going to have major issues that go beyond healthcare. It affects every other facet of our community. Um, And that's the same thing with finance reform and bringing in pharmaceuticals that cost less for our aging population here, as well as those that are living in poverty. Um, And he doesn't seem to be able to see that. And it's, it's upsetting. And it's a clear, distinct difference between the two of us. What do you say to people? I don't know if these people exist, but what would you say to someone who would look at Carper's voting record and say, well, uh, of course, this is how it's done. This is, you know, corporate welfare is Delaware's business development and development model. Right. So um, it is. It is kind of Delaware's development model. Uh, and, And here's the thing. We can still put regulations in place for banks and we will still be the best option of all the other states in the union for any bank or corporation. Uh, we're not saying to destroy any alliances we have with them, but you have to hold them accountable. And if somebody doesn't step up and start doing it, it's going to injure us. And we are often told that's the excuse. Well, we have to look out for them or we're going to lose jobs and things like that. But every time we make a contract, such as with AstraZeneca, as soon as the contract ended, they left and we had unemployment and we lost the industry. Um, And that's a problem. So uh, to me, it's just an excuse to me, again, it's about who are our donors. And I'm not saying that people did it maliciously. They drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, right? Career politicians have been told over and over and over again, the way to success is to have these major donors that pad your campaign account. And then you're unfortunately, you're beholden to them. Uh, newer candidates such as myself and Ocasio and Ng and um, others across the board realize that's not the answer. The answer is in the people. Our country was set up to be run for the people and by the people. And every time we go and knock on a door, every dollar we get in donations is all about one individual, 
making sure they are heard, making sure that they feel empowered to vote. And now we've changed what, po- what politics looks like, feels like, and will, how it will represent people. One thing that I, that I saw you point out in, in, uh, in an interview or for an article somewhere was that the Dodd-Frank overhaul, the business-friendly Dodd-Frank overhaul, hurts mobile home residents, which is something that I, that I hadn't heard before. And, and after reading that, I reached out to someone at the Center for Responsible Lending about it. And I was hoping that you could explain a little bit about what this provision that I'd never heard mentioned before does for mobile homeowners and why that's something that you're talking about in Delaware. Why it's such a big deal in Delaware is our lower two counties, um, we lack industry. That's one of the major issues that we have here in the state. Um, And so their way to the American dream, and I say they're, um, actually it's very inclusive because I am a Kent County resident. Um, Often for many of us, our way to the American dream is by purchasing mobile homes. It's what's affordable. And the income of a family of four tends to be pretty low, right? $30,000 for those purchasing mobile homes. Um, And so this provision, this portion of Senate Bill 2155 injures them in the fact that it it takes away their ability to um, sue their landowners, right? Um, Which is a big deal. And even as things are set up now, it's very difficult to push forward within our state and nationally. And there are a there's a conglomerate of banks coming around buying um, mobile home parks throughout the nation, right? And so this kind of feeds into that. If you have a group of people who don't have a lot of money require to rent land on your property um, and they have no means to say, hey, you're taking advantage, you're raising rents too quickly, that's a problem for people who have a low amount of money. And further, it makes it so that they can only go to certain lenders, which makes it so that it's not, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but it's easier for them to raise the rent. I mean, the uh, mortgage costs and 50 to hundred dollars might not seem like that much to certain people. But when you're living off of $30,000 for a family of four or anything around that 50 to hundred dollars means food. It means paying for your car. It means allowing your child to participate in things that children should participate in, such as baseball and soccer and dance lessons. Um, and this is a big deal. And it's, and it's especially them. a lot of money if, if your home is a depreciating rather than appreciating it's, asset. Exactly. But it's your one it's your one piece of pride, right? You earned it. You saved the money. You purchased it. Everybody said that uh, a lot of people who are living in poverty like it, like these people, um, they're told, well, they just want handouts, but they saved, they made it happen. And now you're just going to take that little bit of extra money. And to me, somebody has to scream at the top of their lungs because unfortunately the way finance works, in my opinion, it's the silent killer, right? You don't pay attention until it's too late. Nobody's really reading Senate bill 2155. It's boring. It's in legalese. But then when you go to buy this mobile home, you're saying, I can't afford another $50 to $100 a month. And we need people paying attention to that stuff to make sure that we no longer let a whole group of people get forgotten. Your time in the military was was formative, but I've read that it also forced you to grapple with, one, being gay in a profession where at the time being gay was prohibited, And two, also grappling with the Iraq war, which it was your job to support the 
which it was your job to support it, but but you opposed. Tell me about that experience. My military experience, yes, it definitely was formative. I uh, I got the opportunity to get the best job in the Air Force, and that's an enlisted air crew position. You figure two uh, percent of the air of the Air Force flies. Um, and I was part of that 2%. Everybody else is there to make sure mission is accomplished, right? So um, I got to travel around the world and see amazing things. At the same time, I got to, I got the unfortunate opportunity to see what war really looks like. Uh, and it was upsetting. And And when I first joined, I didn't think that I would be going into war. I joined at a time of peace. I joined in May 2001. Things were pretty calm. I was going to, I was planning to get my uh, education and then I wasn't supposed to leave until November, but September 11th happened just a couple of months prior. And um, it turned from an idea of opportunity to a patriotic call. I have come from a long line of service members and I was ready to go, right? America was attacked. Let's let's take care of this. But it wasn't long after I was in that I learned we'd been lied to. And, you know, any most people, when they realize they're going to go to war, there's fear. And once it really hits you after you graduate from basic and things are going to happen, you realize um, there's a reason why they give you hostile fire pay, right? And uh, it's, it's not worth what you get paid. And... Um, and you get angry. You get angry because you see the change in your friends. Um, they go from being happy-go-lucky young people who have the world in front of them to seeing an emptiness in their eyes. Um, I've lost friends to suicide. Um, other friends, uh, if, you know, I have family members whose lives just will not be the same because of it. Uh, my life was personally affected. And then you're bringing back body after body after body. And you're saying all of this happened on the premise of a lie. Um, and it made you question leadership. It made you wonder what made it profitable for them when the rest of us were on the line. Um, you know, there's there's someone on my team, and we reminisce often. There's actually quite a few veterans on the team. And we reminisce often about our time in the service. And I remember one individual saying, you remember when we were in Iraq and they made us put on flak vests for the media, but we had no protection in them. People were literally picking up shrapnel on the side of the road to put into these flak vests. Um, but it was all optics. Same with our Humvees. And then we scream out, we support the troops. And it's uh, and it's, it's a lie. And we know it when we're in. Um but at the same time, I saw some amazing things such as, you know, black, white, Spanish, Asian, uh, rich, poor, um, north, south, east, west, male, female. Uh, it didn't matter. We moved a mission. And even being gay, um, while there was fear that my leadership would find out, those that served shoulder to shoulder with me we were open. We understood because we had to be. We were family. And most of the time, we were the only ones we had. But um, And so I saw what it meant to focus on what the end result is. And we would leave behind those things that 
growing up as an American, we were taught should divide us. And that's something I carry into our campaign. Um, however, having to serve under don't ask, don't tell, knowing I wanted the military to be my career at the time, um, it, it was upsetting. You shouldn't have to lie about who you are. And I remember thinking, as soon as I'm done with this, I will never cover up who I am um, to make others feel comfortable. And I also knew that it was important for other people to see that you deserve to be anywhere you want to be, uh, exactly as you are, as long as you are doing the job that you were meant to do. And that's something I carry into this campaign as well. Uh, I push policy without apology because I know that's what's right for the people. I represent myself um, exactly as myself because I think that being genuine is something that people need to see again. And I serve uh, my country as a, when I, was, I served my country with integrity and I will continue to do so as a candidate and then also going forward as the next Senator of Delaware because um, people need that. People need to know that they can trust you. They need to know that what you say is what you mean. Um, they need to know that if you don't get it right, that you'll you'll apologize and keep pushing forward. They need to know that uh, at any given time, you are not afraid to explain where you stand, even if it's not what they believe in. But um, you're not afraid to explain that's why you stand where you do. And those are things I've taken from the military, um, and I still carry with me. You were just discussing the 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 optics of the war, the support our troops, which often really just means support the war when the reality yes. of the troops on the ground is, as you said, people picking up shrapnel to to protect themselves. Donald Rumsfeld couldn't have cared less about the the safety of ordinary soldiers on the battlefield. Your opponent, Senator Carper, is a hawk. This is another yeah. thing that distinguishes him from a Democratic mainstream that's already too far to the right, but he's to the right of that mainstream. And he voted for the for the Iraq war, seemingly with lots of enthusiasm. Tell me about the role that that debate is playing in your campaign and what his rationale for his foreign policy positions has been if he's felt compelled to to offer one. As of yet, he has uh, not offered an argument in that sense. Um, Currently, there hasn't been a true acknowledgement of my presence except for to make sure that he's ramping up um, his comms meeting, making sure there's billboards and commercials and stuff like that. Um, however, he's trying to mirror a little bit more my platform. But in, as far as when coming to military spending and things like that, it's just saying again that he supports the troops. My issue is um, not to say that he doesn't care for some troops, but overall, in what, in my opinion, supports the troops is to make sure that they have what is required for them to be successful, both while they're serving and when they get out. We have these exorbitant military spending budgets, and everybody falls victim to the adage that if you don't sign it, you don't support the troops. But here's my knowledge as a recent veteran, and uh, my opponent uh, has served his country as well, and and during Vietnam, um, but I'm not sure if he forgot what it was like at that time, but I can say this. During my conflict, I know that we consistently got the same type of pay raise between 1% and 3%. And politician after politician from throughout the nation would say, oh, well, this is, you know, 
going to help the troops. But the truth is that's just the cost of living, and it really didn't even keep up with cost of living. Still, E1 through E4 in the majority of states qualify for some type of food stamps or other social services. Still, when you go into the military, the majority of jobs do not translate directly to the outside world. Still, there are we have greater numbers of children born with disabilities than the civilian world due to the exposures we have, and we don't have adequate spending to make sure our children are taken care of. Still, we have spouses that follow us around from base to base every two to four years, so they do not have career stability. And there is not a program in place that is adequate enough to make sure that when they come to the end of their 20-year term for serving their country as a spouse, that there is something there to help support them. The GI Bill currently only goes to the active duty member, and then if they choose, they can transfer it to the spouse, but the spouse doesn't get it on their own. If you've served the time alongside that your spouse that is currently enlisted, you should get those benefits as well. This, it takes a whole family. They're all sacrificing. Um, VA benefits, on average, take 10 years to get and yet we're, saying, we're screaming at the top of the lungs, our lungs that we support the troops. But do you know what's always the biggest part of our budget? It's making sure that those who are our contractors, Boeing and the Lockheed, mm -hmm. yes, Blackwater, they make a whole lot of money. They are really well taken care of. We're not supporting the troops with these exorbitant budgets. We're supporting the contractors. And that has to change. And people need to call it out. And I challenge veterans who are currently serving in our Congress to call it for what it is and remember your experience and keep pushing that out there so people know it has nothing to do with supporting the troops. Very well put. In the Bill of Particulars against Carper, in terms of him being to the right of the Democratic mainstream, he also voted for a bill to make English the official language of the United States, which is very unusual for a Democrat. What is up with that? You know, he hasn't said why. Uh, but what's interesting is Delaware is a very immigrant-friendly state. Uh, we currently have one sanctuary city. We're working as a state to um, become a sanctuary state. We have a number of people from South American countries. We have a large African population. We have a, a large Eastern European population. None of those scream English speakers as a native, as a first language, right? Um, and in order to get to the point where you are a naturalized citizen, you need to be able to speak your native language uh, and read the documents in your native language to make sure that you know what you're signing up for. If you're going to force somebody to only read in English, you are taking away from their ability to know what they are pledging to our United States. Um, further, uh, it's ironic. I am the youngest of six, but my first four siblings are from my father's first marriage, and they are part Native American out of a tribe from New York, the Shinnecock. And I can promise you that their language is not English. Um, and so if we want to make a first language, then perhaps we need to talk to the Natives to see what the right language would be. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that I know is becoming an issue in, in the race in terms of Carper's record is that in 2006, he was one of just four Democrats 
to vote to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh, now Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court that could very well, unless there's some miraculously divine intervention, put that body on a collision course with the popular will for a generation. Um, He was one of just four Democrats to vote to confirm him to his seat on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. What's his explanation for that vote? And what do you make of it? Uh, His explanation has been that Kavanaugh basically uh, hoodwinked him. However, something that stands out to me is that, again, only four Democrats voted to confirm And the other ones seem to say, hey, his history doesn't add up. It's not safe. It doesn't align with our platform. Um, And so, again, we we need to make sure we're electing a leader that can see what the long-term implications are of all of their votes. Again, I'm not saying that Senator Carper is not a nice guy, that we can't have a conversation with him, but we need to make sure that the conversations we're having he remembers when it's time to do things like vote on legislation and vote in the right nominees to make decisions that will last decades or lifetimes for some people. And he, in this respect, in um, his confirmation of Kavanaugh in 2006, we saw that he he doesn't have that ability, at least in this case, um, to see the future from people's past experiences and voting records. Left-leaning voters typically turn out at lower levels for midterm elections, and your strategy, if I have it right, is to change that. How does that work? Well, a couple good things happened, right? Um, And people people laugh at me when I say we're in good times, and um, I say that because we've woken up, right? There's there is the the poem that was written during World War II about first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a socialist, so on and so forth. And at the end of the poem, it says, uh, and then they came for me, and there was no one to speak up for me. I say we're in good times because we haven't gotten to the point where we're speaking up after everybody is gone. People are starting to realize that our struggles are truly connected, and uh, this current administration has woken a sleeping beast. We were complacent for too long. We realize it and we're ready to move forward. And especially if we know that there is messaging we can get behind. People who have proven themselves to work within communities for years prior to showing up to ask for an, a vote or for to ask for a donation. That's the difference that you would see in me and other progressive candidates. Um, and I hate to use the term progressive to be quite honest because the truth is our message transcends any party lines, um, when we stick to what is really moving people, healthcare, education reform, job um, guarantees, all of these things make people say, there is a chance for me. I'm getting heard. Uh, You understand where I'm coming from. And you see that the future can be better for yourself and your family. And and, and I think that's going to make all the difference. And so I've literally been canvassing and had people register to vote right there. Um, I've had a person that, um, one of my favorite stories, I don't know how much time we have, but I'm going to Go say it, it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I work full time actually at, I don't know if you've read that too. So I work full time and I also, uh, campaign. So days are crazy. And one day I was getting off of work 
and I went to a local sandwich shop and I ordered a sandwich. The young lady that took my order went to sit down while a gentleman made my sandwich. And she went to sit down next to this little girl. She was like three or four years old. And I was watching and she was reading to her and every so often would get up and clean tables and the little girl would help her. So I'm eating my sandwich, watching this the whole time. And at the end, I get up and I go up to her and I said, I'd like to say a couple of things to you. And she says, okay. And I said, the first is you're doing an amazing job. You can tell that your daughter is thriving, is picking up all this information and you're naturally a good teacher. You make it enjoyable. And she's excited. She says, thank you. Um, and then I say, but obviously if your daughter's here, you're having some struggles, uh, because of childcare. And she goes on to tell me about some other issues she's having. Um, and then I tell her, I need you to know something. And I say, I'm running for United States Senate and I'm not telling you this so you can vote for me. However, I'd love your vote, <laughs> but I'm telling you this because it wasn't that long ago that I was frying chicken at the local gas station and cutting people's lawns and wondering what was next. And now I'm running a strong campaign for United States Senate. And I said, when I win this, I am going to remember what it feels like to struggle. And she said, well, <laughs> and she just stood there for a minute. And then she said, well, how can, how can I get involved? And I said, well, are you registered? She said, no, I've never voted. And I said, well, first we have to get you registered. So we worked through the registration process. And then, um, then there was a follow-up and she asked me, how, how do I get job training? And it hit me like a ton of bricks because she is on where I met her was one of the main streets in Wilmington. And we have a ton of nonprofits. And there was a young lady sitting right there that needed our help. And, it made me realize just how important it is to win this race. One, to make people excited and ready and know that they'll be heard. And the second is to change fundamentally how we do outreach, um, to make sure we don't miss the young lady in the sandwich shop trying to make things better for herself and her child. Um, and is just missing the opportunities because she doesn't know where to look. I don't know much about Delaware politics, but two things that suggest to me that the situation is a little different than New York. One, from what I understand, Carper is a, a somewhat more in-touch politician than Crowley. And two, for a variety of reasons, the constituencies are, are somewhat different. What do you say to critics who would argue that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win can't be replicated in other places? The key is, and as I mentioned earlier, the key is we're not running off of demographics, right? We're running off of the issues. The thing that I said made the military such a wonderful experience is that we were able to push to the side all the things that growing up we were told should divide us. And that is exactly what campaigns like Alex's and my, my own are doing. We're focused on the issues. You don't hear us saying anti-Republican things. You don't hear us saying anti-Trump. You don't hear me saying anti-Carper. You're hearing me say, these are the issues that we need to fix. These are the issues we need to rally behind. We can do it together. Uh, if you stand with me, if you agree with me, let's let's keep pushing forward. If there's something you see that doesn't sit right, ask me about it, and we'll see if we can change it. And if not, there's going to be something else you can jump on board with. We're suspending our propensity to pass judgment and are only going forward with what we know really will impact the greater good and create long-lasting change. And so um, 
yes, the things that are similar are Crowley and Carper have long careers in Congress. Uh, they have name recognition. The differences, Carper comes home almost every night unless there's a, a late night uh, vote, just like every other person in Congress for the state of Delaware. We ride that train back and forth, and it it is the Delaware line, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, there is a difference. We're also a small state. Uh, something I love about our state is regardless of where you are, whether it's the big city um, or if it's one of the rural towns, it's a small state mentality. Everybody kind of knows each other, is very closely related, meaning uh, six degrees of separation is what the rest of the world is supposed to have. I always joke and say we're about two, right? And so you have to be present. You have to show up and shake people's hands. Um, and so I will always give Senator Carper that he is very present. However, again, going back, it's not good enough to just remember somebody's names or the name of their children or what high school they went to. You have to remember their story when you are writing legislation, voting on legislation, using your platform to create change. Even if you really can't put in place something, you can make it so that people rally behind it and change a narrative. That is the type of leadership we need, and people know it. The demographics here are very very, very much so, depending on the state. I mean, the, the county, right? Um, our lowest county is heavily Caucasian, um, very small percentage of Black uh, and Hispanic. The, our central county is much more diverse. Um, and then our northernmost county is uh, has heavy communities of color. Um, and it probably is about 20, 25% uh, Caucasian. So when we say that, that, we're seeing what very much mirrors, and what I love, we mirror the rest of the United States. Um, and I always say, if we get it right in Delaware, we can be the model for the rest of the United States on what works, what type of messaging brings people together, what type of representation makes it so that the majority of people feel heard and satisfied because not you'll never get a hundred percent but you have to get it so that the majority feel that they are going to be taken care of um and what we are finding in this state is the same thing that alexandria ocasio found in her state uh i mean in her district which a lot of people wanted to say uh was just because of her demographics absolutely not it was the message was resounding with people. And that's what's happening here. And it's making it so that regardless of party, people are jumping on board with the campaign, helping out and pushing forward. Just as an aside, there's data that strongly suggests it was not demographics um, in her race, which exactly. is, goes to prove that they're opportunistic and wrong and grasping for they are. Self-serve, they are. <laughs> self-serving explanations. My last question is, if people want to get involved if they want to hop in their car and drive to Delaware to give over the next few weeks of their lives in an effort to pull this off, or if they're going to be at Rehoboth to hit the beach for a few days and want to help out, what website should they go to? Carrie Evelyn Harris, that's K-E-R-R-I-E-V-E-L-Y-N-H-A-R-R-I-S.com. And 
you can go there to volunteer, to donate anything you would like. If you would like to come out of state to help knock on doors, please let us know so that we can get you housing. Um, and we would love your help. We know it takes a village and it is a beautiful thing to see a nation come together to make change happen. Carrie Evelyn Harris, thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. You have a great day. Carrie Evelyn Harris is running against U.S. Senator Tom Carper in Delaware's Democratic primary. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that working-class politics compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a nice review, because those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do check out patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Bye.